0: Welcome to another episode of the Birdsend Academy podcast. This is the show for online course creators who want to build a profitable business by sharing your skills and knowledge. This is your host, Welly Mulia. If you're not listening to this on our website, go to academy.birdsend.co2 to get your show notes. Again, the website is academy.birdsend.co2 to get your show notes. This show is brought to you by Birdsend email marketing tool, the only email marketing tool specifically created for online course creators. Get your free forever account at Birdsend.co. That's Bird as in the flying bird, and send as in sending emails. Birdsend.co. Today's special guest is Taylor Pearson, and Taylor is an entrepreneur and author of the Amazon best-selling book, The End of Jobs. Entrepreneur Magazine called it one of the seven books every entrepreneur should read. His work has been featured in dozens of media outlets, including NBC, Inc., Entrepreneur, Coindesk, Ribbon Farm, and The Financial Times. A former Brazilian Super Bowl champion, Taylor lives in Austin, Texas. Taylor, thank you for coming to the show, and it's great to have you here.
1: I'm excited to be here, uh, and thanks for having me. Cool.
0: Cool. I know you're big on mindset and productivity, so can you tell us what you think is the uh, most common misconception about that topic, productivity?
1: Yeah, there's a a quote
2: I like from an author, uh, an author whose books I like named Nassim Taleb, uh, and the line is, use courage and wisdom to make money. Uh, not labor and I remember hearing that for the first time and I thought about it for a couple of years and sort of my observation with a lot of Productivity advice is that it often gets built down what you call like productivity hacks. Like how are we gonna hack this? How are we gonna? Um, build this hack and ultimately what what I started to see for myself and, and for other people was that um, the ultimate productivity hack so to speak was uh, was basically courage, you know, so the example I always give is, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I had a crush on a girl and like many people in high school, what you would do is, you know, I would go around, I would like talk to her friends and see if she liked me. And I would like try to, you know, read whether or not she liked me and, you know, you'd spend like, uh, I don't know, you know, I spent like months doing this, uh, and like the, the courageous thing to do that would have been much more productive is I should have just, you know, walk up to her in the hall and said, Hi. Uh, you know, I, I think you're cool and I'd like to go to the movies with you or whatever. And they would have taken two minutes. Uh, and like that, you know, that would have been more productive than the the 50 hours or whatever I spent, you know, trying to figure it out. And so I think that's, that in my mind is sort of the, the big misconception with productivity that ultimately boils down to like, how can I be more efficient just getting these tasks done and and hacking them together as opposed to, to how can I be more courageous in what I'm actually choosing to work on.
0: Okay, cool. So wisdom and courage. Not a lot of, that's right. Right. Yeah. So not a lot of people have that. I mean, uh, people, a lot of people that I know of, usually they doubt their abilities and they seem to not have the courage, whatever it is in their life. Like you mentioned, approaching a goal or a date or maybe in business itself as well. So how do you go find the, the wisdom and courage
1: that people need? Yeah,
2: I'm not sure there's a, an easy answer, at least not a one size fits all answer. I think in terms of courage, one of the uh, heuristics, one of the rules of thumb that I come back to is from a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which is a wonderful book. And in the book, he creates this idea uh, that he calls the resistance. And so the resistance is sort of his name for that voice in the back of your head that goes you know, you're not good enough or that other person's better than you, or, you know, you can't lose weight on your diet. Uh, you'll never lose weight or you can't start, you know, you can't succeed at this new product at work. You're not good enough. Uh, and he sort of creates a name for this thing called the resistance. And I think, uh, everyone at some given point in their life can sort of feel, um, where the resistance is, you know, it's, it's what they're putting off doing. Uh, and so I think for me, what what being courageous often looks like is trying to figure out you know where where is that resistance what's the thing that i'm um sort of resisting doing because it's you know it's scary it's like going up and talking to the the girl or the boy and saying uh you know i like you do you want to go to the movies with me um so i think thinking about that idea of of resistance and where that is in my life and then trying to lean into that as opposed to uh going around it or avoiding it uh is often sort of where where the courage comes from
0: Okay, cool. I know that you have this bestselling book, The End of Jobs. That's, that's how I got to know you initially. And I know it sold tens of thousands of copies and translated into almost a dozen languages. So can you walk us through what the book is about?
2: Sure. So, um, the book really started, uh, I worked for two years for uh, an e-commerce startup. Um, and I was originally from um, Memphis, Tennessee, which is in uh, sort of the Midwestern United States, the southeast of the Midwestern United States. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't say I grew up in a very entrepreneurial world. Neither of my uh, nor of my family was was particularly sort of entrepreneurial. Um, I didn't have you know, I don't know friends, dads, or moms that were that were business owners. Uh, and so sort of the whole idea of being an entrepreneur was kind of foreign to me. And I, uh, I ended up working for this e-commerce company, and the, the founders of that company had sort of a big network of uh, entrepreneurs, people running startups and small businesses. Um, and I got to know them, and they were running, for the most part, uh, internet-based businesses. So uh, software companies, uh, online media, or publishing companies, uh, e-commerce companies, Things like that, and one of the things I, I started to sort of realize was that uh, something pretty substantial had changed uh, relatively recently. That part of what the internet had made possible was it sort of changed the dynamics of um, what entrepreneurship was and how it worked. Um, so one thing that happened was uh, you had what what I call or uh, there's a book called The Long Tail. Um, created all these new niches or all these new industries. So, You know, if you go on Amazon, you can buy you know sort of like laundry detergent for moms whose child have gluten intolerances or whatever. These like very very niche products um, that just don't work in sort of a physical uh, retail-based world. You know, if you're stocking a, a Walmart uh, in Mississippi or whatever, uh, you need to have you know you need to be able to move a certain volume in that in that geographically uh, enclosed world. So the other example I give for the long tail is, um, uh, I know a woman who sells tarot cards these different sort of like tarot card packs and how to do tarot cards. Uh, and it's hard to imagine, you know, most cities in the world having enough people that live within say five miles that you could open a tarot card shop. Uh, but suddenly on the internet that works and, and millions and millions of other businesses like that. Um, work. So there's this sort of this big, um, called a, a blue ocean of uh, this vast space of, of market potential, um, that was kind of untapped. Um, and the other thing that was different about these internet businesses was, uh, they were just pretty cheap to start, you know, going, going back to, um, if you wanted to open a, a store on, you know, main street or wherever in your, uh, local city, you're going to have a, a lot of startup costs. You know, for example, I know, um, if you want to buy, McDonald's is a franchise restaurant. So they sell licenses to franchise to people. If you want to build and start a McDonald's uh, it usually customer between a million and $3 million. Uh, so that, I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. Uh, most people can't put up a million to $3 million, um, to start a business. But most, uh, internet based businesses are, are, are much less expensive. You know, if you're a software developer, uh, all you really need is a laptop, um, to start writing uh, code. If you want to start an e-commerce company, Um, the costs that have come down, um, dramatically, uh, used to be say like the mid 2000s, the company I worked for, uh, we were one of the first companies that I know of that could do production runs, um, in China for less than a hundred thousand dollars. You know, it used to be, you had, you know, 500,000 or a million dollars, like starting a McDonald's franchise to get started, uh, and now manufacturing technology has got better um, voice technology, you know, being able to talk to someone on Skype as opposed to faxing back and forth, um, you know, product diagrams has gotten much better. Uh, and you can start an e-commerce company now for a few thousand dollars as opposed to to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so all of a sudden, you have um, this much lower cost to entry, uh, and then this huge sort of uh, untapped market. And sort of what to me and what the book is about is um, the idea that. Uh, all of a sudden it sort of changed the risk reward, uh, formula for entrepreneurship that you don't necessarily need to, uh, start, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to invest a bunch of money up front, but you still have, um, sort of a significant market potential. And so the book is really sort of exploring that and then talking about, um, some sort of specific strategies people can use to, to step into that world.
0: Okay, cool. So. What gave you the idea, I mean, you talked to us about how you noticed that uh, with the internet, long tail and everything, uh, business becomes cheaper cheaper to build, especially online businesses where you can have a laptop and internet connection, maybe a phone, you can run a business. Um, why? I mean, there are already topics talking about that at a time. I think you wrote the book, if I'm not mistaken, in around you published the book in about 2015-ish, is that correct? That's right, yep. Yeah, so, I mean, there are already books out there about this topic, like how you can build online businesses. What, uh, what made you want to write another book about it?
1: So I think, at least
2: in my mind, what was sort of unsatisfying about the sort of existing books, um, well, they didn't explain why. And I, I wanted to understand, you know, I think one of the things I saw um, working the company I was with, sort of meeting other people that were that were in that network was, uh, I think, a, a lot of the entrepreneurship books, um, which is not a bad thing, are, are sort of just rah rah and let's do it. Um, this is sort of inspirational, or um, just you know very tactical, like this is how you set up an email marketing funnel, and this is how you do search engine optimization, and um, this is how you do all that kind of stuff. And I think both of those are are helpful and have their place, but um, I think what was what was compelling to me personally uh, was this idea that it was a a sort of a a mispriced asset, if you will, that people were just misunderstanding what the opportunity was here. uh, And it was a, it was a better opportunity than most people uh, understood. And so I think sort of what was different about my book um, was a bit of starting with the very, very macro perspective, looking at um, the economy, uh, you know, sort of the big, big economy and what that all, looks like and what that meant and why that was happening and then drilling sort of from that down into okay now if we start with this premise of why all these things are happening how can sort of you as an individual
1: take advantage of that okay cool so now you you have your book
0: and talk to us talk to us um how what was what was your life before the book like how you got to I mean you're, you're a best-selling author now and you have uh, you work with people one-on-one, you coach people other businesses, startups. And I, I also noticed that you have this portal, the where you connect uh, people who are looking for jobs like internships with startups who are looking to hire kind of like an interns, correct? Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. So, so now that you have your credentials, right now, talk to us. What was what was your life before all of this happened?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in Tennessee. Um, I went to a, I played football in college at a small uh, Division three school, which is like a uh, not like a premier school. Just a, it was a very small um, third division school in Birmingham, Alabama, and I studied history. Um, and I graduated uh, around the time of the, the global financial crisis uh, in 2008, 2009. And as you can imagine, there were not a lot of people that were hiring history majors out of uh, no-name colleges in Birmingham, Alabama in uh, 2008, 2009. Uh, and so I started sort of exploring uh, other options. Uh, I worked for about a, a year as a medical interpreter. I had a minor in Spanish, and I spoke pretty good Spanish. So I did um, sort of freelance um Medical interpreting, Uh, and then I got a job teaching English uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So I was moved to Sao Paulo and was was living there, working at an English school. Um, And I started listening to podcasts. So I I would teach classes in the morning. Uh, It was mostly teaching adults. So you know, I teach sort of before work and after work. Some kids, but you know, maybe teach from like 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. And then I'd have classes again for maybe. Uh, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the afternoon. So uh, in the middle of the day, I, I started sort of listening to all these uh, internet business podcasts, um, people talking about what it was like to run an online business and how it worked. Um, and at the time, I, I wanted to travel and I, I wanted to live outside the U.S. And so starting a, an online business seemed like a pretty interesting way uh, to do that. So I started uh, teaching myself search engine optimization Uh, I built uh, a handful of sites that were basically um, ad supported sites uh, about different types of kitchen remodeling and I was selling ads on those using a program called Google AdSense where you can just sort of embed Google's code on your website and then you get paid for everyone that clicks on your ads. Um, And that turned into, I got a job offer from a marketing agency, Uh, in memphis tennessee so i moved back to memphis to take that job um mostly because i wanted to learn more i felt like i could learn a lot faster working with a company than i could sort of doing things on my own so i worked for that company for about a year i got another job with the e-commerce company i mentioned to you i worked with them for a couple of years Uh, and at that point felt like I, i had learned quite a quite a lot i'd gotten to meet a lot of people my network was a lot uh, bigger as a result of working for, um, for those companies. Uh, and just my knowledge and understanding of online business, how it worked, what to do, um, had grown a lot. And so at that point I felt uh, a little bit of confidence to go out on my own and, um, start doing freelancing. So I, I was marketing freelancing, um, doing mostly SEO and email marketing is my, my background. Um, and during the first year that I was, um, Working for myself, I, uh, I wrote the end of the jobs sort of as a, a, a side project. Where I'd wake up sort of an hour earlier in the morning and I would just work on it for an hour in the morning and, and sort of do my regular work the rest of the day. Um, and then yeah, it came out in 2015, as you mentioned. Uh, it did much better than I expected. Uh, I hoped it would sell. You know, I said if it sold a thousand copies, I would be happy. Uh, and I was fortunate to end up selling a lot more than that and uh, has opened up a lot of cool new opportunities for me.
0: So how did um, the next step, the next phase of your, I mean, after End of Jobs, you have this, what was the website about the, where you connect the intern and people who are looking for interns?
2: Yeah, it's called Get Apprenticeship. So one of the ideas I talk about in the End of Jobs is this notion of, uh, this notion of apprenticeship. So, you know, when most people think of uh, apprenticeships, um, this is less so in Europe. Um, more so in, uh, in the US, at least, you know, you typically think of like the blacksmiths in the Middle Ages, um, sort of this this ancient thing. But, you know, the idea is is relatively simple, right? You come, uh, you get a job uh, working for someone that sort of teaches you their trade and, or, you know, for a number of years, you learn to develop that trade and then you sort of strike out on your own and do it. And so that was sort of a pattern I saw, you know, both with myself um, and with a lot of other people that had been successful in online businesses is that had either formally or informally, some sort of apprenticeship position where they spend a few years working with someone. Um, it was more experience to sort of teach them some of the uh, some of the trade. And so the the website you mentioned, Get Apprenticeship, is basically a matchmaking service trying to connect people looking for those sorts of apprentice positions with um, internet-based businesses and startups that are looking to hire.
0: Okay, so these interns, are they getting paid? Or is it like uh, I and working for free in exchange for experience?
1: Yeah, they're they're jobs, you get paid. Okay. They're, they're entry level jobs.
0: Okay. And then as, as the owner of the platform get apprenticeship, you would get a fee from the companies?
2: That's right. So we, we charge a fee, uh, a listing fee to advertise, and then we also have a matchmaking service where companies can pay us, and we'll uh, not just post sort of their job posts, but we'll uh, promote it to our, our database and to some other external sites, and we'll help them filter candidates and screen candidates for them.
0: Okay, cool. So just now when you were mentioning about you were working, um, and then after that you were freelancing, what made you... I mean, what made, what gave you gave you the courage to to quit your job and then start freelancing? Were you were you doing kind of like part time before you actually quit, and then you get, you go to a point where you get, uh, already have a few clients, and then you quit your job, or how how does that work?
2: So uh, part of the reason I, I the job ended was the company I was working for was uh, was in the process of being sold, uh, and so I sort of knew the job was. Um, uh, was going away, or at least was going to sort of change dramatically. Um, so I think that was certainly certainly part of it. Um, as I mentioned, I, I had, as a result of working for that company, I'd been pretty actively sort of um, building out my network. I'd started a sort of a personal blog, which I still operate, but uh, at the time mostly talking about marketing and case studies and sort of started to build a, little r- a reputation um, within my personal network as you know, being someone that knew what they were doing and and was something someone you know that had experience and people to want to work with. So uh yeah when when I left the position I, I it, the first few clients were sort of people that I that I knew that trusted me, um, that I I felt like I could start with pretty quickly. Uh and then I think also it was um I had some money saved up and I just sort of said, you know, I'm I'm gonna try this. And if it doesn't work by the time I get down, you know, by the time I burn through this much money. Um I'll just go get another job, and I felt at that point pretty confident that if I wanted to get another job doing the same thing I was doing i could I could find another job
0: okay, cool yeah the reason why I asked is because uh a lot of listeners are in the are in the position that i mean this podcast show is for online course creators, and not all of them have are into this full time so some are even starting new so and a lot of them already have They are day jobs so yeah with your courage you have the confidence to know that uh you have a few clients that you you have you can take with you and if not then you have you you don't you have disabilities that you can just go out to look for another job so that's the reason why i asked you because i want to inspire all the other listeners that who are still having a day job and maybe they are trying to start this online course business then they can start part-time and then transition from there. So that's why I asked you the question.
2: Yeah, I mean, the example I always give, or often give, uh, that I speak talk about in the book is I call it stair-stepping. So I think what's different about uh, a lot of these online businesses, like online courses, is you can get started, uh, yeah, you can start started part-time and you can get started relatively inexpensively. If you want to set up an online course and, uh, you know, even if you only get you know, five students or whatever in your first year and you're just doing it on Saturday mornings or whatever, um, that's something you can do. And it's not like, you know, you're sort of opening a piece of real estate where you're paying $3,000 a month or something, uh, to have the store and like, you know, really has to work out of the gate. And so I think it is, uh, it's a lot more feasible, uh, to sort of start small and build up. And at least for me, I mean, I was, I was fairly active as, as a blogger, uh, for about two years and that was my my side project. you know i would work on that on the weekends um in between my jobs and that sort of gave me a bit of a a platform both to launch the book and to get clients uh, after i ended up leaving
1: cool so
0: what do you think is the number one problem for people who
1: can who cannot seem to reach their goals
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, obviously these things depend a lot on, on the individual. I think some of the common issues I see, um, one I would call sort of like a lack of, uh, definition, um, that often the goal is, uh, is vaguely defined. Sort of, you know, one of my, uh, rules of thumb is like, can you break this goal down into tasks which can be done in an hour or less, uh, and and get, and get it more defined. So, you know, say out like, Okay, I want to, you know, start a successful business. Okay, like, can, can we unpack that uh, into to one hour task, uh, and then can we think about like how do we just get those tasks done? So I think a lot of times it gets sort of nebulous and it seems like a big thing, and people are, are slow to get started. So um, unpacking it, defining it more clearly, uh, and breaking it down, I think makes a big difference. Um, and I think the other thing that I think a lot for me personally is what I would call like speed of implementation. Um, that a lot of people that I see that are successful as, um, entrepreneurs and freelancers, um, are, are very quick at sort of going from, I have an idea to, um, you know, I've launched this idea in the world in some way. So I, I'm a big Twitter user. I think in some ways, Twitter is kind of a cool example of that. You know, I'm thinking of something walking to the gym on Tuesday and I can open my phone and I can put it on Twitter and I can, uh, Implement, you know, I can get that thought out into the world pretty quickly um, So yeah, I think that's that's another big component that I see is sort of a common theme
0: Okay, so uh, Speed of implementation interesting and you mentioned you can put your thoughts into a uh, Twitter and Do you usually get I mean? So you ask people about your idea in Twitter or what it, it, it was phrased as a question or are you, were you just posing your thoughts to get feedback?
2: Uh, just, po- just posing thoughts. I think it's an example. I think what happens to a lot of people and certainly still happens to me, uh, that I try to work on is, um, coming back to this sort of idea of resistance, like you, you have an idea and you're like, Oh, I don't know if it's going to, be good. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know how it's going to go. And, you know, you spend two hours thinking about this thing uh, that you probably could have actually done in like 15 minutes. Uh, and so just doing the thing uh, and then figuring out later if it works uh, it, in most cases is a lot better. You know, if you're dealing, you know, especially with you know, if you're running a nuclear power plant, Sure, you can't do that. But if you're running a software company, or you know, you're building an online course, or you're tweeting, uh, it does You know, I've got lots of dumb tweets that I've done over the years, and and it doesn't really matter, and no one cares, and they sort of disappear into the ether of Twitter or whatever. But sort of building that muscle um, of being willing to to implement quickly, I think uh, that cumulatively ends up making a pretty big difference.
1: Okay, and then your first point about the lack of
0: definition, which is being vague. And you mentioned about breaking down into tasks, specific tasks that you have to do. A lot of people are, especially online businesses, they they have a lot of things in their mind, as you probably have heard about information overload. So they see that um, this, they read this blog post and, or they attend this webinar or they listen to this podcast and everyone is saying different conflicting things. So how, how can one know the, how to break the task down into specific tasks? I mean, which is the best way to go? Because different experts give different advice. So how do you know which one to follow to, to let's say um, define that okay, I have to do this, 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 this to reach my goals. What is your what is your take on that?
2: So I think generally um, there's sort of like a paradox of hard decisions. I've been thinking about this lately, and I think decisions are hard a lot of times because the different choices uh, are indistinguishable to us. So you know, if you think about you know, if you have one amazing job offer and two bad job offers it's like not that difficult of a decision. You just take the one amazing job offer. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have three amazing job offers, it becomes like a really difficult agonizing decision because they all, you know, they, they all look amazing. And so I think, uh, you know, a lot of these times you like read this course, you read this blog post, you watch this webinar, you go to this podcast, uh, and they all three seem like, uh, reasonably good ideas. Um, Either one, they're just all reasonably good ideas uh, and it doesn't actually matter which one you implement because they'll all work about the same. Uh, Or two, uh, you just don't have enough knowledge about it yet to figure out uh, which is the best way. And I think the best way to get that knowledge is normally just to pick one of them. Uh, And do them even if it's not uh, even if it's not the right thing and then you can look back in retrospect and go Oh, actually now that I've done that I learned that you know x y and z didn't work and a b and c did and I should do more of a b and c and less of um, x y and z Okay,
0: cool. I like that. Yeah because many times we We cannot see too far into the future. I mean it's it's always good to have long-term goals but a lot of times when it comes to doing things we just like you said, pick one, and then from there it will lead to other things that we previously didn't think about and previously thought it was impossible, but after doing these things, then um, things get clearer. Yeah, so I like that. What is your advice for people who want to boost their efficiency and productivity in terms of their since this is a business podcast show, so in terms of their business, how can one boost their efficiency and productivity so that they get the most things done in the last amount of time?
2: Sure. So I think we talked a little bit about sort of courage and the resistance and that idea of, of laying the resistance. I guess I'll speak a little bit to the idea of um Wisdom, or what you might call, you know, like work smarter, not harder, is is often one of the phrases that gets tossed around. Um, I guess one te- technique that I found very helpful that I've um, talked to a fair number of people and and seems to be generally helpful um, is what I would call like time blocking or, or time chunking. Um, so there's a, an essay from a, a writer I like named Paul Graham. Uh, he calls it makers and manager schedules. So uh, maker schedule. You know, this is someone This could be an artist painting a piece of art. It could be uh, a developer writing a piece of code. It could be, you know, someone building an online course. It could be someone writing a blog post. You typically need sort of these, these big uninterrupted blocks of times, you know, two, three, four hours to just sit down and work on the thing. Um, and then managerial work, you know, taking meetings, entering email, can sort of be broken up into maybe 30 minute blocks or an hour blocks where you're sort of switching between things. Um, and sort of the idea here, right, is there's, there's this task switching cost. If you go from uh, working on, uh, you know, your detergent business to you know, doing accounting for um, some other business or whatever, you have to sort of like load up all that mental RAM of what's going on. So to the extent you can sort of group like projects together uh, into to blocks of time, uh, I think that's a lot better. And so generally I think what that looks like for most people is uh, looking at your day uh, and breaking it up into two or three blocks of time, so you know maybe there's um, nine a.m. to noon, and you take a break for lunch, and there's one p.m. to four p.m., and you know you'd go for a walk, and then there's you know five p.m. to seven p.m. or something like that, and figuring out you know how can I sort of like group and chunk things together.
0: Okay, so maker is the one where you a lot of you have to spend the time to do a lot of creative tasks, like you said. And then the manager,
2: what is the manager? Uh, so the manager, like you know, you think of like what does is, what is a middle manager role do at, at most large companies right there? Uh, in a lot of meetings, they're answering a lot of email. Um, they're doing these sort of smaller tasks. It doesn't, you don't really need, you can answer email for 30 minutes. Uh, you just open the email and pick the first message and start going. Uh, you know, if you wanted to write, you want to do sort of a bigger creative project, you want to, you know, write, um, write code, or you want to write a blog post, or you want to make a, a sort of outline your course, it's hard to do that in sort of like 15 minute or 30 minute chunks, right? Because you got to think about it, load up all the mental RAM. Uh, and so you end up getting a lot less done than if you say had a three hour block that was dedicated as opposed to to six 30 minute blocks where you're trying to just do little pieces at a time. So figuring out sort of what those, those like big maker tasks are, and blocking out bigger times for those. Uh, and then um, fitting the manager work into sort of the, the cracks that remain. The, the story I like, or the sort of metaphor I think about is, um, you know, imagine you have uh, a jar sitting on a table uh, and next to the jar you've got a, a bowl of sand and a bowl of pebbles and a bowl of rocks. So if you start with putting the sand in, sort of all the little tiny things, and then you put the pebbles in, there's not enough room left in the jar For the rocks but if you start with the rocks the big things and you put them in the jar first then you put the pebbles in the pebbles will fall around the rocks into the empty space and then you put the sand in and the sand falls around the pebbles to the empty space you're able to fit everything uh, into the jar right
0: yeah that's very smart and i like that analogy so the sand is basically those little unimportant things that need to be done in a business but it's not that important but you need to get it done in order to have the business to continue correct that's right okay cool yeah so basically when you are you say uh separate your time into chunks and then you spend for example three hours on the maker stuff and does that mean that within these three hours you don't you don't get interrupted like because you know now everyone is um add and then they keep checking their phones or maybe go to social media to check their uh if someone has like their post so are you saying that if we block out say three hours to do this to write this article then don't do anything else that's right okay cool so if you can only give one advice to people who want to build a successful business, what would that be?
1: I guess the thing I wish
2: you know, someone had told me was um, pick something you want to spend uh, at least a few years of your life working on that... Um, most businesses, the, the returns don't come after one year or two year or three years. They come after five years or seven years or 10 years. So thinking about, um, you know, what's something you care enough about that is something you could see yourself spending, um, you know, three, five, seven, ten, fifteen, twenty 10, 15, 20 years on um, is a good sort of uh, rule that, that most of these, most businesses don't do well. At first, it's sort of a a very slow start uh, and then the returns come longer down the line. So you want to make sure it's something that you care enough about to stick with for a long
1: time.
0: Okay, cool. One more question about your answer to that question, which is, so someone stick around for 10 years, 20 years or whatever length of time. How is a long time, right? How How can they see that This is something that, I mean, they are passionate about the subject, but how can they see that this will be something that's profitable uh, financial-wise because running a business, you need money to sustain a business. What would you say about that?
2: Uh, Yes, I I think there's other criteria you would want to apply than than just that one. I think that's often the most... um, that's often the most overlooked one, which is why I brought it up. But, but certainly, yeah, you know, if you get six months into the business and it's clear that, um, you know, no one wants your product that you're, you know, you made an online course about, uh, I don't know how to use saline eye drops and like, no one really wants to learn about how to use saline eye drops. Uh, then yeah, obviously you're gonna, you're gonna have to rethink that. Um, but I think that's at least most people think about that. Going in, you know, you think about, you know, is this going to work, or will people buy this thing? Um, and I think often discount, you know, do I care enough about this thing to stay focused on it for a decade?
0: All right, cool. Last question: mindset and tactics. Which one do you think plays a bigger role in the success of one's business?
2: Uh, I, mean, I think they feed off each okay. other. Um, you know, often going back to sort of the idea of, um, of speed of implementation, often, you know, implementing the tactics quickly, even, uh, even without knowing sort of where it's going to go or exactly how it's going to, going to pan out can sort of be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It can, it can just end up working out, um, out of a certain type of, you know, just like serendipity or persistence, um, So yeah, I think, I think often probably the the common misconception between them is, well, I'll, I'll just like fix my mindset first and then I'll go do the thing. And I think more frequently what happens is you just say, I'm just going to start doing the thing, even though, uh, I don't have that much confidence in myself and I'm not sure if it's any good and I'm not sure anyone will like it. Uh, and then you slowly able to just build confidence over time. Okay, cool. So Taylor, if
0: someone, if listeners want to get to know you, how, how can they get in touch with you?
2: So my website is, uh, is myname.me, so Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N.me. Uh, you can go there. I have a newsletter if you want to sign up. Uh, and then the easiest way to reach me is probably Twitter. So I'm on Twitter, uh, and it's at Taylor Pearson Me. So just like the URL for my website.
0: All right, cool. So thank you again, Taylor, for sharing your experience and skills. I'm sure this is very good advice for the listeners out there.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening. I really appreciate it.
0: If you're not listening to this on our website, go to co/2 to get your show notes. Again, the website is academy.birthsand.co co 2 to get your show notes. This show is brought to you by Birdsend email marketing tool, the only email marketing tool specifically created for online course creators. Get your free forever account at Birdsend.co. That's Bird as in the flying bird, and send as in sending emails. Birdsend.co.